Hey everybody, Frank Sikornitsky here. We're doing part two of two one-hander episodes of the Sand Dude podcast. One-hander being the British theater term for a one-man show. We thought it might be interesting to kind of split off onto our own, do our own material, and we have kind of found it's super difficult to just do your own stuff for 30 minutes versus actually having an interactive conversation. Because if you sit here and talk to yourself, it just kind of sounds strange. But anyway, I had to pick a topic and I have decided to pick talking a little bit about Web3, a little bit of the history, a little bit of where it stands and a little bit about how I feel and a little bit how I think it should be looked at. I'm not sure I'm gonna come up with any answers though because the more I've investigated things, the more I'm a kind of two minds of it, but we can kind of jump right into it. For those of you who don't understand Web3, it's become super popular over the last year as a concept um, of where the world is going to be going in the future. So Web3 is kind of the next version of the web, meaning there was a Web2 and a Web1. This was all done retroactively. Uh, the web was just the web at the beginning. And sometime in the mid-2000s, there was a conference that needed a hook. So they decided they would call it Web 2.0 to differentiate it from the non-dynamic, non-interactive web that had marked about 1994 to about 2004 to something where there was a lot of interaction and a lot of data being held and a lot of measuring of users. So once that revision started to happen, it got very popular to kind of cut the web up into these different versions. When in reality, the whole thing works on a sliding continuum and just continuously evolves as time goes on. It's marketing 101. In fact, it's also political science 101 and everything else 101 that if you want to control the situation, you change the conversation. And in technology, what better way is there to do that than to change the version number? Well, that was 3.0. Now we're talking 4.0. Anyway, we're talking web 3.0 now. And actually, I have to be very careful there because there was a competing notion of web 3.0 that had to do with a semantic web and tagging of information, which is entirely and totally different from Web3, all one word, just W-E-B number three, which is today's push for these blockchain and decentralized solutions to basically any problem that you can name. The critique being that Web2 created all of these huge centralized platforms such as Apple after the iPhone released and the App Store came out and there was a platform or Amazon or in this case, Facebook, Twitter, all of these companies that evolved afterward. We unironically have things called Work 2.0, Industry 4.0, and all kinds of other version things where the movers and shakers of a particular market want to make it sound like something next level is happening. Web3 is frequently compared to the dot-com boom of the late 90s, early 2000s, which is something that the Web3 people drive some crazy. 
because they don't think they're in a hype bubble. They think they're just the future, which is funny because it's exactly the way the dot-com people felt 20 years ago. I know I was there. I was one of them. So there's a lot of other similarities in the way the knee-jerk things happen. So back then, if you came to somebody who was doing something inscrutable and you said, you know, explain to me the business plan behind this, they would simply say, well, you just don't get it. You just don't understand the profound brilliance of my next level stuff. You heard that a lot in the dot-com days, right? And a lot of other Web3 things, they'll tell you, well, I'm solving this problem. And you'll go, well, that problem's been solved. And they go, well, but blockchain or but NFT or but crypto. Uh, or decentralization, which is kind of funny because, again, back in the dot-com days, people went, but web browser, but internet. And that was supposed to be a sufficient retort to quiet you. And unfortunately, it's kind of not. Because back then, but internet didn't make profits just materialize. And about 85 or 90% of all of the companies that started up around then got wiped out And there were a few who survived that became your generational companies, your Amazons, Salesforces, uh, Apples, after the iPhone came out and they platformed everything. But it turned out that just adding web to stuff was not enough to make it a compelling business, just like I think, and actually is kind of true if you read the literature, just adding blockchain to stuff is not necessarily sufficient to make it a great business plan. But this is where the hype comes in, right? Because I've read a lot of articles online that say that here's a hype-free analysis of Web3, or here's a you know hype low, a low hype version a low hype version of the blockchain story or the crypto story. And I think it's super important to leave the hype in because hype was a main ingredient in the dot-com bubble as well. And to kind of just dispense with it, I think dispenses with a lot of the urgency and exuberance around both things, right? And So while people right now doing Web3 might bristle at the notion that it's way overhyped, I'm not sure saying that's a bad thing. All bubbles are actually like all good rumors and a lot of other things are based on a grain of truth, right? There has to be some kind of there there for a bubble to form around. So somebody somewhere in Web3 has a great idea. It's just so much hype has been laid on top. And unfortunately, also so much fraud and uncertainty and doubt. It's almost as if Web3 is the weaponization of these things. But anyway, I wanted to kind of look at Web3 through a completely different lens, meaning, and at the risk of trying to kind of force coin a concept, I'm going to submit for your consideration the idea that if something is sufficiently well-formed, an idea or a movement or a concept, it should be possible to take all of the attributes of that thing and map it onto a well-worn cultural allegory or satire. Call this uh, Frank's fable formula or something like that. 
So if I'm thinking that I'm dealing with monetary systems and whirlwind journeys and good and evil and indifference, I think this all has to go straight to the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Please note, discussion of the wonderful Wizard of Oz constitutes review of the material from the original L. Frank Baum book, published in 1900 and now in the public domain. This discussion does not reference any subsequent retelling or version in any other kind, sort, or form of media, including, but not limited to, the 1939 MGM movie presentation, or the three times that Phineas and Ferb did it. That's okay. The law allows for fair use in a case like this. It does? Yes. That's refreshing, because it's really, 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 really hard to talk this fast all the time. Anyway, with that aside, I think the first thing to look at is characters. So obviously, the first character you're going to look at is Dorothy. So Dorothy must be the user, right? Dorothy must be the end consumer of all these services. But I don't think she is. I don't think she is. I think Toto is, the dog. And I think Toto is because Toto is seen but not heard, or at least Toto's not understood. Toto might bark and make noise, but taken along for the ride. And certainly in the dot-com days, this was totally true. In the Web3 days, it's all supposed to be about the user, but just like the dot-com era had this super haughty and imperious attitude about the infallibility of their ideas, Web3 has exactly the same thing. Web3 does not escape constantly telling everyone they don't understand just how awesome it is, although they themselves can't describe it. It just must be better. So I can't imagine that this whole thing is taking the uh, cogent objections and observations of somebody who's speaking clear English versus a dog just yapping. But let's move on. So what's the Tin Woodsman? I think the Tin Woodsman represents another Web3 concept, which is the uh, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, or the DAO, which is supposedly the way that you do away with middle and senior management in an enterprise by creating a bunch of rules that govern the way decisions are made and that everyone kind of votes on it. It's soulless, it's heartless, it's inhuman. It's supposed to be a much better way of doing things, although it's weird. While the Tin Woodsman himself was not a villain, so many of the villains in popular culture are built exactly like a DAO. Star Trek's Borg, for example. HAL 9000, right? If the rules aren't perfect, it becomes homicidal. If the rules aren't perfect, it destroys everything. So I think it's just kind of interesting that there's so much exuberance around this. And the Web3 people would say it was a low shot, but the first DAO, the first big one to be put into existence was actually turned into such a scam and such a giant hack that they actually had to rewind that blockchain to fix it. And they've only pretty much discovered who was behind it now, six years later. The decentralized automated organization seems to be a great fit for the Tin Woodsman because one of the knocks, besides being incredibly slow, one of the knocks on DAOs is they have no human intuition. And there are a lot of situations where they will fail to make the best decision because they've only been programmed to make a certain kind of decision. I think uh, uh, I could talk to the scarecrow. 
Scarecrow is made of straw. He's got no brain. He doesn't connect things together. He's kind of random. He's not even very good at his job. That's NFT. That's non-fungible tokens, which is another blockchain NFT Web3 thing, which these are tokens that can be minted in any amount that are supposed to represent a digital good or a link to a digital good or a link to a physical good. It's all very amorphous because the NFT can link to just about anything and there are no rules or laws underpinning that link. Meaning somebody could sell 10 million copies of the Mona Lisa when they're just selling 10 million links to a picture of the Mona Lisa, which if the hosting bill isn't paid, comes down and then the NFT has nothing, right? There's a lot of conspicuous consumption in this space, meaning, okay, we can create a little avatar and people can buy it for a million dollars. And the reason for it to exist was to buy it for a million dollars. Right now, NFTs only represent people who either got in very early, who are creators, or who have a lot of money and want to show off that they have a lot of money. Doesn't seem to be any use cases right now that fit very well into an ordinary user's life. So because they're ambiguous and seem to have no connections and seem in, in many ways to be dumb like that. It's a perfect allegory for the scarecrow. So then we get to the cowardly lion and clearly marketing notwithstanding, the cowardly lion is crypto itself, right? He's supposed to be fierce. He's supposed to be all commanding. He's supposed to be the apex predator but he's never sure what he's doing or where he's going. He's, he's supposedly fierce, but in reality, he just cries a lot and he runs away at the slightest provocation, right? He is he's a true chaotic soul. He's unpredictable and we're not entirely sure if he's going to make it the distance or not, right? We're never entirely sure if he's going to figure it all out. So I think since he's a work in progress, He's a great allegory for crypto itself, which is still, I think, trying to prove its value to the masses. I think it's interesting that if you look at a lot of other financial stuff online, a lot of things are sold on the idea that, hey, we will manage your money and bring you great value, or we will bring you great convenience, or we will bring you great ease or great riches. But crypto is marketed on television as don't be a loser, right? Which is a really strange marketing pitch. If you think it, step back and think about it. Matt Damon basically telling you, you got to be brave, which is a really weird thing to tell people to do with their money. We've been told all our lives to be smart with it, not to be brave with it. And Larry David, don't be an idiot like Larry David, because only Larry David could be a big enough idiot not to hand over all his money to us. So again, this is a space that has not shaken out in the wider consumer consciousness. What other things do we have in the wonderful Wizard of Oz? Uh, obviously, clearly, the road is the blockchain. So the wonderful Wizard of Web3 is a little bit different, though. It's not a particular color, and there are a whole bunch of different roads. There are roads of all sorts of different colors and some of them lead nowhere. And some of them are very big and some are very small and some are slow and some are fast. Everyone has a different thing, except that there is a horrible toll 
to be paid for almost all of them. All of them destroy forests and wetlands and farmland and everything else as they're ripped through. And the price to be on them is that you yourself have to pick up a couple bricks and kind of put them into the right place as you traverse the road, the blockchain. So that one's kind of an easy allegory. Of course, probably one of the most important ideas to consider is who's the wizard, right? They get to the city and what do they find? This one sort of also writes itself. It's a little bit of an inversion of the wizard we're used to from the story. Actually, when they meet the wizard, the wizard seems to be the kind of dawdling mercutial prankster who's in charge of everything. And But in reality, what he's hiding is that explosive temper and that control freak tendencies, if not a streak of just pure evil. That's what's hidden. To hear the people of the city tell it, well, he built the city and everything around it. He created the whole thing. He manages everything single-handedly from behind that curtain. He is the end-all, be-all. He is our hero when we worship him unreservedly. But in the end, after the curtain's torn away, we find out what the true nature of things are. We found out he's bought his way in to most of this stuff from a whole bunch of people who were there before. He was super, in fact, unbelievably lucky in a lot of the deals he was able to make because he actually has rooms full of experts running every single aspect of the city and created all these things he's collected over the years. And this hero worship is super carefully cultivated because it's really not who he is. We just need to believe that. And in that case, you can pretty much name your billionaire because several of them fit this idea. In fact, one in particular, but I'm not going to say so because he might get angry at me. So the little test I've just devised that you should be able to fit these concepts into a farcical, like fable or satirical framework, actually Web3 seems to be acquitting itself quite well so far. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to flesh out the entire story. Uh, considering the original book is in the public domain, it would be possible to actually adapt the work into a modern work of fiction based on it. I think that would be super interesting. Um, but since I'm almost out of time for my one-man show this week, I only have one last observation about Web3. As I said earlier, I was originally of that internet mind, the whole why wasn't I consulted attitude, which underpins everything that happens on the internet was an observation that was made, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, that all interactions on the internet come down to, why wasn't I consulted as kind of an unspoken subtext to everything? But the more I looked into it, the more I realized there were a lot of ways to look at this. And you had to look past a lot of the fraud and hype and a lot of the just sheer stupidity and people trying to jump on the bandwagon to see Okay, where's the value in all? And I'm having a super hard time still finding widespread applications for all of the blockchain stuff that these startups want to do. Blockchain is a horrible solution for most problems. Um, most engineers would very honestly tell you that. But something I can't ignore and something that's very, very interesting for all its hype 
and the distinct possibility that 90% of everyone who's invested in Web3 or quit their traditional job to work in Web3, all of these 90%, maybe 95% are never going to profit one thin dime. They'll make their salary, but they're not going to make the equity. It's not going to be worth it, right? That's the same thing that happened in the dot-com day. Right? You went from company to company as everything dissolved and all of this equity you built up, all you could hope was that it didn't fall so far that you actually just owed the IRS money on the basis. But the thing about Web3 that it shares with .com that I think is an unmitigated good is the excitement. Right, I haven't seen excitement like this in almost 20 years. I mean, the irrational exuberance sometimes is refreshing and fun. I don't remember feeling this when social media got hot. I don't remember feeling this when mobile got hot. I don't remember feeling this excitement. I always felt like with social and with app stores and with mobile that we were always playing on somebody else's territory. And I think what the dot-commers share with the web threeers is both of us were thought, I'm not gonna say we were, but we both thought we were building bedrock. We both thought that we were driving piles into the very core of technology. And that's a super fun thing to think about. And it's a super fun thing to have some involvement in. And also, I can see that there has been an enormous amount of enthusiasm on the part of creators. We do live in a creator economy now. We do live where content is king. And I see people who traditionally just didn't engage in creation suddenly feel like they need to be creative and that this is this is the bunch of tools that's going to enable them to do so and that's a very pure and i think very special kind of excitement and you know i fear a little bit if this whole thing comes down that it's going to lead to a kind of disappointment that puts a chilling effect on creativity but for now for now, I think those are the good things. But having lived through the dot-com, you know, we didn't know what shape it would ultimately take. We didn't really know who the actual winners would be. And that's okay for the Web3 people to feel as well. And I understand, though, especially today, humility in considering your future is a super hard quality to have. And especially, double especially, when the space is all about the next venture capital raise, the next round backslapping the bros and laying your stuff out there with as much bravado as is humanly possible. But I'm going to have to leave with one thought, which is that maybe Web3 needs to learn that humility before it could grow up. And that's all I got for this week. You can go to our website, which has been updated at sandune.org. You can go to the Sandune podcast handle on Twitter to tweet back at me and scream at me for saying anything bad about Web3 or .com, by the way. And everyone have a great week. Hans and I will be back and we'll have a lot more to say. Talk to you soon.